This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, and welcome to the third episode of the Detection at Scale podcast. I'm here today with a very special guest, Cynthia Moore, who's a security leader at Blackline and has over 20 years of experience in the space. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for the lovely introduction. Going great. Thanks for having me. So before we jump in and talk through security at scale and a lot of other things that I'm really interested in in learning about from your background, I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. In the short amount of time that we have, my background is I've traveled, lived and worked in about 80 countries. I come from a non-traditional security background. I started in infrastructure operations, building telecom systems all over the world for small and medium organizations. Transitioned to larger tech in about 2010, where I moved into a purely cybersecurity role in D.C., did some interesting things with immersive simulations and multidimensional security operations there. Really got an appreciation for offensive security. And then I moved out to California into the entertainment industry and worked at Disney, which was something different again, and learned a whole lot in my three years there. I got to travel to some interesting places as well as stand up a security team in Shanghai, China. And finally, I took on a role about three years ago working at Blackline, which is a B2B SaaS company doing soup to nuts security for them as the senior director of information security. Awesome. Sounds like a really interesting background. And you're telling me a little bit about how you used to run a hotel and do other things like that, too. That sounds like really exciting and fun. For today, I'm, I'm really interested in, in understanding your background as it relates to you know going from Disney which is just a huge entertainment company you know one of the biggest in the world if not the biggest and then going to blackline so i'm curious what were the biggest differences in running security in those two companies and where did you really start with them well at disney because it's a well established entertainment company that's a multinational in about 130 countries with about 170 lines of business Well, more now, but at the time, about 170 lines of business. The main thing that I was doing there was developing a way to get your arms around the big picture of security across the organization and to evangelize secure by design in all of the various business operating organizations within Disney. How that differs with what I do today is Disney itself doesn't have a SaaS focus. It has an entertainment focus. They work with SaaS, but they as an organization are not focused on the duties, responsibilities, and and unique security opportunities that a business-to-business SaaS company would have. When I moved to Blackline, I loved that challenge because it was an area that I hadn't previously focused on. At Disney, I focused on security of things, security of third parties, security of traditional data center networking, 
security of a huge, massive organization with various different types of technologies that have to talk to one another. Main focus being vulnerability management and device security. Whereas here, the main focus, along with hardening and incident response, is detection across large cloud entities and protection of data across large cloud entities. And of course, application security and DevSecOps across large cloud entities. And when you think about the differences in the team needed for like a cloud-based environment versus a bigger like monolithic on-prem or hybrid environment, like how do you think about the difference in building and staffing a team out? Well, at Disney, when you're sitting at the corporate level, the large number of your employees, at least at my particular area, were architects and more or less consultants. They were good at their job. They could do hand on keyboard, but their largest role was in convincing other people what right looks like as far as security goes. On my current team, my team is very deeply technical security engineers and architects. They are developers at their core first and application security, passionate evangelists and engineers second on the one hand, or their red team offensive security practitioners first and security operations engineers second because of the role that they play within a SaaS company. And I guess like, what are you really focused on solving at the moment at Blackline? Or, you know, I I know you probably can't say specifically things, but, you know, just (laughs) broadly, like what are the challenges that you're thinking through as a security leader and, and what's on top of mind right now? Well, as with many other publicly traded companies, there's a lot of the things that go on in the news that become super important to our customers, being that we're business to business. We have to answer to the companies that are big and influential. And they have oftentimes a lot of focus on the latest and greatest big breaches and how we don't become another statistic. And so for me, I spend a good chunk of my day doing a lot of R&D around what's the next thing that's coming and how do we detect and how do we prevent and how do we respond to it so that the impacts felt are very minimal to zero. And how do we communicate that to our customers so that they feel security and safe? How do you communicate that to your customers? I'm just curious. I believe in a lot of transparency and I believe our customers are smart. So One of the things we do is without disclosing private information about how we do business that would put us at risk, we remind our customers of the things that we do and we allow them to make up their own minds and ask questions. We have an open dialogue with our customers and we pride ourselves on the ability to learn from and share information with our larger customers. And I think that helps build a lot of trust, especially in SaaS businesses where the whole purpose of SaaS is to alleviate overhead, right? It's like, we're going to provide you a service. We're going to do it for you. However, we're going to have more control over your data, over the underlying service and all these other things. So I think transparency is really, really key there. And I wonder when it comes to like building teams out for doing its response and doing defense, do you think about having people dedicated towards that relationship with the customer? Or is it really the responsibility of you, the leader? Or maybe do you partner with another team who helps facilitate those conversations? Like, how is that relationship really like developed with account managers? Like it's all of the above, really. 
as a leader, it's my job to free up my people's time to keep our company protected. And so by and large, I take the majority of the senior most level conversations with the customers. In addition, as a B2B organization, which is typical of many B2B organizations, we have an entire group of folks that are highly trained and dedicated to addressing our customers' concerns. Our customers tend to be large and our customers tend to be sophisticated, maybe even larger than we are, and in many cases, much more large and in their security teams than we are. And so they'll have a lot of questions. It's important for them to have a single voice that they can reach out to, that they can build a relationship and build trust with. So we heavily rely on and communicate with our account management and our customer management team. Yeah. And again, I think trust is so important for a SaaS business, just because whenever there's a breach or if anything bad were to happen, the communication part is so important. And you just have to be so clear about what's going on. You know, this is what we've done to prevent it, but you know, maybe sometimes things happen and keeping that trust is so important for the business itself. The thing I was just thinking about when when you were giving me the last answer was how does your background, which is quite diverse in like the types of roles that you've held, how do you think that prepared you or like made you like ready to do the role that you do today? Well, on the one hand, I can kind of feel their pain because my background originally was in operations and telecom. And since I've worked for so many different types of businesses. I can try to speak a language that isn't purely security, and I can try to speak a language that isn't purely technology. And instead, I can approach the problem from their particular business type, the kinds of threats that would be top of mind for them, and help them to feel heard, understood, and empathized with, really. When I say, I feel your pain, they can kind of get the sense that I do. And I think that opens them up to being willing to share what's top of mind for them in a way that gives us insight. And it's sort of a feedback loop that feeds upon itself at that point. And I guess, what type of security are you most passionate about today? So there's, you know, a lot under your purview as a leader, but what are the things that you're investing the most in when it comes to being effective at doing security at scale? I will say that because we're a SaaS company, we have a lot of emphasis on application security. And there's this sort of buzzword that's DevSecOps and another buzzword that's known as shifting left. And I sort of throw them on their head and I'm passionate about that. And I'll explain. When you think about shifting left, to me, that implies that everything right of whatever that left is, and in this case, the the point of development, is sort of lessened. And I don't agree with that. I actually believe in including the left. To that end, I recruit members from every line of technology, train them on security things, partner with them. I take my engineers and I make sure that they're trained and experienced in application development. And what we do is we prototype together. And so the security person has the lens of the pain that the developer is going through and also what is important to the developer team. The operations people on my team partner with the infrastructure team and they're prototyping the scalability of our cloud environment rather than just the security. And so now we get to secure at scale and our security doesn't harm scalability and delivery. 
And now our application security and our secure coding guidelines do not harm the functionality of the application because we know how it works because we've put our hands on it. And I'm super passionate about building that relationship and that training because without it, I don't think that we'll be fast enough to respond to the things we'll find at scale. When you think about the tools needed to really be successful at scale, what's your mentality with when to decide to build something versus just buying software and and moving on? Well, actually, that's an interesting question because build versus buy is, is one of those healthy tension things that you have on any strongly skilled development team. When you build something, you own it for years. And when you buy something, you have to fight the battle with the third party to make sure they exist for years. There is no easy answer. For me, what I look at is, is this a commodity task that we can easily automate? If the answer is yes, well, there's your answer. You can probably build that automation internally. But if the thing is not a commodity task, if it's complex and I would have to dedicate a team to it, it's probably better to force multiply by buying an established or at least promising tool that can serve that complex purpose with the experts who built it and then actually augment my team with a long-term relationship with that vendor, bringing them sort of halfway into our enclave and making them part of the team. Yeah, I think that's a very healthy way of thinking about it. My opinion about it is like when the problem is so unique and so nuanced, it's not really worth your time, right? The time it takes to understand the problem, build a solution and keep the solution running for years and years, that's time that could just be spent working on security and improving the safety of your customers, your infrastructure, your environment, et cetera. Similarly to that question, how do you think about augmenting your team? So do you try to always hire people full-time for the team or are there instances where it's actually more efficient for you to bring in a third-party services provider for certain things? I think I've actually managed both. I've managed both teams. I've managed a team in the past where the first line of defense was outsourced. And in my current role, I manage 100% on-premise team. There are arguments for both. In my opinion, again, it goes down to complexity. It also comes down to passion. Is A third-party team going to care as much as my people about the logs and monitors that are coming by. So if thousands and thousands of logs are coming by, that can be brain-numbing for somebody to stare at a screen. If the person staring at the screen all day is being paid to do that, are they going to do it better than a person on my team? Or even better, automation and internal intelligence or data management that we've set up in order to parse what's really important. It's a hard one I haven't got an easy answer for. So far, I still tend to believe that my people will care more than a third party. And so I try as much as I can to augment my internal staff with automation, proper tuning, maybe a little bit of data analytics. But generally speaking, I keep that in-house as much as I can. There are good arguments for doing differently. And I respect those others in my position who have chosen that. It's just for me, I feel better. I sleep better at night knowing that someone who cares about my business is looking at those logs. And the thing I want to dig a little bit deeper into is automation. So as you've built out your team, what are things that you encourage them to automate versus not automate? 
I encourage automation wherever we can. As a company that punches above our weight class, we need to be able to parse large amounts of data. We need to be able to spin up things quickly. We need to be able to be responsive to things that are important. So we take a slow, fast, slow, fast approach. Slow in learning the problem that we get all the angles to it. Fast in developing places where the patterns make sense to automate. Slow in troubleshooting those to make sure that we take the time to understand and make sure we haven't missed any false negatives. And then fast in implementing the thing we've proven and validated. It's like a measure twice, cut once, right? Exactly. Exactly that. And you've mentioned data analytics a couple of times. I'm curious, how is your team using data to better defend against attacks? Well, we are at the point where we have a few years of log data and we have technology now out there in industry that can take large amounts of data. Like look at Google Analytics. So Google has a big data program where anybody can look at sample data and do experiments with it. In our case, we have a lot of data that has to do with just our normal daily logs. I have my my people taking a look at that data and seeing if we can see any low and slow patterns over the large tranche of data. Things that would normally in your day-to-day look be not even a blip on the radar. They would be outside the bell curve. You can understand that normal attacks and things, what normal looks like is a bell curve. That's statistics, right? But you get these things that are outliers, that are these single blips that are sort of outside what you'd expect, your normal distribution of things. Most of the time, those blips show up once in a blue moon. But one of the things I have my team experimenting on is looking at the big picture to see if those little outliers form their own kind of bell curve of a threat and response cycle that we can learn from and make ourselves better at detecting and responding to before they become more than just a random blip on our radar. And what's the advice or the guidance that you give the team to understand what is normal and abnormal? Don't make assumptions. That's the biggest advice I say is don't make assumptions. Ask the question. And if you say, I think, find out until you can say, I know. Security is one of those things that's so opaque where you could be like searching for years for something you'll never find. You know, you could be looking for that breach and you'll never, ever find it. And it's really hard to keep people motivated sometimes, right? I don't think it's that that demotivates people. I think it's the, the opaqueness is the thing. And I think you hit the nail on the head with that term. The malicious actors or even people who don't know they're being malicious, because I think a lot of malicious actors are actually just really smart people that are really dumb about understanding the consequences of their actions. But they have this whole community where information sharing is free and tools are cheap and easy to find. And our community is like, no, you have to have a cert for that. No, Mm. we're not going to share this information. It's how we do business. No, like this is the island of no. It's not the island of no that we're traditionally known for. but It creates all these barriers and creates this slowness of skill appropriation and slowness of evolution of talent. And I refuse for that to be an internal problem, but it's an industry problem. If the bad guys only got to get it right once to break the dam and we constantly have to plug the holes, you need a lot of thumbs to plug all those holes. And if you make it offensive to try and stand next to somebody and stick your thumb in a hole, They're not going to want to do it. 
Why do you think that dichotomy exists, though, like in the defender world versus the attacker world? Because the attacker world, getting the goods is the business. The defending the world, the intelligence is the business. And that's it, plain and simple. They're selling knowledge or, you know, the good side is selling the knowledge and making it a crime to seek the knowledge on your own. And the bad guys are saying, we have cookies and brownies and knowledge is free. We just want you to get rich and give us some of the profit. That's really, really insightful. I like that a lot. And something that I saw that you'd written out on, I think it was your LinkedIn profile, was really interesting to me. And you said that you're trying to build teams to solve impossible problems. And I'm curious on like what those impossible problems are. Well, having a 500,000 entry database was impossible not that long ago. Fitting a terabyte onto a watch was impossible not that long ago. I just, I want teams that don't make assumptions of what we can't do. I want to ask about, well, what's the next thing we can do that points in that direction? And sooner or later, usually sooner, we can get to a point where we've broken down this massive problem that nobody even knew where to begin into these small bite-sized steps that give us something actionable that we can do. And even if we can't get to the destination today, I just refuse to think of things as impossible. If we say, oh, it's impossible for us to defend against the state actor, is it really? Maybe they have more resources and time than we do. And today, yes, they have the advantage. But what's one thing we can do to make their life hard? Giving up and assuming that compromise is inevitable. I don't think that's the right approach. Perhaps we aren't as skilled as them. I know that we don't have the same time nor the same resources, but I bet there are things we can do. And I bet there are things that we can do tomorrow, building on the things that we could do today. I bet we can train other people in our organization so that they can spot something that we couldn't because their perspective is different. And hence, a security champion program is born. Perhaps we can set a detection on things that you wouldn't expect. Like, for example, if a bill suddenly spikes, well, why do we care about that? Because maybe somebody spun up a computer that's we would never see, but it's charging a lot of money suddenly. And it doesn't have to be more than a few pennies. But if that more than a few pennies was 300% of what the bill was for six weeks, we should probably check it. And thus, you know, the impossible becomes sort of possible. No, I, I really, really like the way that you think about it. And I think that is the only way to really solve these big challenges to break it out into smaller parts and then really just challenge the status quo of like, well, you know, do we just accept defeat or do we just create a strategy and, and work through that? And I think that's a really great mindset to have as a leader. So this has been really a great short conversation that uh, we've had today. I think the thing I want to leave with is if you were to give it three pieces of actionable advice to any leaders listening in for like building effective detection programs at scale, like today, what would those three things be? I would say tools are your friend, but they're not the only answer. So if you don't have a tool for something, don't think you can't do it. So that's the first piece of advice. The second thing is you don't need to hire only security people to do security. There are people in a lot of other tech roles, especially quality assurance and tests, that have amazing insights on security. Also, your DBAs, they actually don't like to tell you they know a lot about security, but they really do. SQL comes with some pretty amazing security features out of the box that nobody ever turns on. 
That's the second piece of advice. And then the third piece of advice is understand that people need to be still to do magic. If we work our people 60 hour work weeks are worse without a break and we don't give them the chance to step away and do nothing. If we don't deliberately take time every day to do nothing, you can never have the breakthroughs that you need to have. So if you care for your people, they will do more. That's awesome. I love that. It's really interesting to hear your perspective as a leader. I think you have a lot of like awesome ways of thinking about it and you sound like just a very compassionate and like thoughtful leader. Well, I also, one of the things that I don't always say, but I truly believe is that you should be the dumbest person in the room. (laughs) Like seriously, if you're not hiring a team of people smarter than you, how can you get anything really done? I agree. And I try to keep that mentality too, as a, as a founder, right? Like I, I always try to hire in people to do certain roles in the company who are better than me. That's the only way you can truly build anything in my opinion. Right. It's like, how can you, as a single person, truly make an impact? Right. You can make an impact by, by coaching others. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest impact you can do. I do a lot of that. Yeah. And I can totally see that in the way that you think about like training the team, enabling the team, deciding what they work on, what they don't work on. Like, that's a really important skill as a leader to actually build something at scale. Because if you don't have that mindset, and you have your team build everything and do everything, they're not going to be as effective. And like picking and choosing what problem to really tackle is super important as a leader. I think so. I also think that it's important to let your people have a voice in picking those problems as well, because they see things you don't. And also don't tell people what the answer is. Ask good questions, because it is so much faster if it's someone else's idea to get them to do it. Totally true. I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to speak with me. It was really a pleasure getting to know you and, and hearing your insight as a leader. Thanks for the invite, Jack. I really appreciate it. This was a treat. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.